Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were so willing to step off of your heavenly throne and come into this world, not just to be a good teacher, not just to help people out, but ultimately to die. But you didn't stay dead, Jesus. You rose again on the third day. You ascended into heaven. You're seated at God's right hand. And we have the privilege of coming confidently into the throne room of God because of what you have done. And Lord, now as we come to your word and we want to study it together, we want to learn what it says and apply it to our lives, Lord, I pray that you will impress upon us in a fresh way today the significance of your resurrection and its, its relevance to our lives, both in eternity but especially even here now on a daily basis. So we pray that you will be our teacher, that we'll have ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to apply what you have to say to us today. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. We're in a series right now that is focusing on the topic of resurrection, Jesus' resurrection and also our resurrection at some point in the future. And with that in mind, I want to just ask us a question, a hypothetical question to consider. What if Jesus was never raised from the dead? What if Jesus was never raised from the dead? You know, there are all kinds of speculative hypothetical questions that we can ask, all kinds of these what-if questions And some of these what-if questions are kind of fun. For instance, what if the Packers never traded for Brett Favre? Where would the Packers be today? You know, they weren't very good before Favre came. They improved a lot after he came. Where would they be? I don't know. It's interesting to speculate. Or what if you had a billion dollars? What would you do with it? Or... What if you had the opportunity to spend one day with anyone from throughout world history? Who would it be? You know, sometimes those what-if hypothetical questions are kind of fun to think about. Many times these what-if questions are very personal. Like, what if I marry the wrong guy? What if I don't have what it takes to be a good parent? What if I don't get that job? What if it turns out to be cancer? It's all kinds of what-if questions that are very personal. Sometimes, looking back on our past, it can be interesting to ask what-if about things that happened sometime previously. I think sometimes about, you know what, what if I didn't transfer to school in Minnesota for my last couple years in college? Because from a human perspective, that decision to transfer started a series of events that led me to be where I am today. I mean, it led to my marriage, led to my kids, led to being a pastor, led to just having a deep heart for ministry, all kinds of things about who I am today resulted from that initial step of transferring to school in Minnesota. What if I never transferred? Where would I be? I don't know. But it's kind of interesting to speculate. Many times, though, our speculations, those what-if questions are related to the future. And if we aren't careful, we can easily get consumed with anxiety and doubt when we focus on the what-ifs about the future. But I want to bring us back now to the what-ifs, especially that big one, that we're talking about today, of what if Jesus was never raised from the dead? This is not a casual question. It's one that really changes everything, depending on whether or not Jesus was raised from the dead. It makes a world of difference. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Typically in the weeks leading up to Easter, we have some sort of special sermon series that relates to Good Friday and Easter in some manner or another. But what's happened in the last few years is that that typically we focus on Jesus' death. Or we focus on the topic of sin in the many weeks leading up to Easter. So you end up with, you know, four to six weeks focusing on Jesus' death. Then you end up with one day focused on his resurrection. 
And if we aren't careful in our minds, we get a little bit skewed in the importance of his death versus his resurrection. And last week we started the series by pointing to the fact that without the resurrection, there is no gospel. The resurrection is absolutely central to the gospel message. We looked in the, in the first verses of 1 Corinthians 15 at what we called a gospel creed. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. He's passing on a creed of some sort that had been passed on to him that dates back to within a few years of Jesus' resurrection. And there were two main events that Paul is pointing to that characterize the gospel. You have the fact that Christ died. You have the fact that Christ was raised. These two, Christ's death and Christ's resurrection, are parallel events that are both equal in importance for the sake of the gospel. If you get rid of one or the other, you do not have the gospel any longer. And this gospel, Paul says in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15, is of first importance. It is incredibly important. And in our passage today, we're going to come to a series of what-if questions that Paul is asking in order to drive home the importance of Christ's resurrection. So I invite you to follow along in your Bibles as I read 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 12. Paul says, But... If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But... He did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. And so this passage starts, starts out talking about people who reject the idea of a resurrection from the dead. Reject the idea of a resurrection from the dead. And when you think about the topic of resurrection, it makes sense that it's a challenging topic to get our minds around. Because resurrection is when you take someone who is dead, and somehow they come back to life. From a human perspective, this doesn't make sense. It is not really possible from a human perspective. But what's not possible for God, or for us, is possible for God. But still, this points to the reality, this challenging nature of the concept of resurrection. It points to the reality that when we talk with people about Jesus being resurrected, and when it becomes clear to them that we fully believe that he was resurrected from the dead three days after he died, that many people in our culture will just roll their eyes, they'll, they'll mock us, they'll dismiss us. They'll think we're kind of off the rocker a little bit because how do you take something that's dead and make it alive again? Humanly, it's not possible at all. We have to understand that this same mentality was true back then. It's not just like, oh, suddenly we have all the scientific data that they didn't have back then. Back then they were really, really gullible. So you know what? They would just believe anything. If they say someone's going to rise from the dead, yeah, yeah, they would believe it. C.S. Lewis would say that is chronological snobbery thinking that we know things now um, and everyone back then is wrong and gullible and all that stuff. They knew plenty well, plenty, they knew enough to know that dead people do not rise from the dead, at least on their own. 
And we see here in this passage, or not just in this passage, but when we look culturally back then, that there were a couple main beliefs that led people to reject the idea of a resurrection from the dead. One belief was that of a disembodied afterlife. This belief in something that happens after death, but it doesn't involve our bodies that we have here on this earth. It's more the spiritual existence after people die. And, and this is important because the idea of resurrection is literally taking a person's body and raising it back to life. There was a continuity between this life and the next, even with our physical bodies. And there are a couple of main influences in that Greek culture that led many people to believe in a disembodied afterlife. Afterlife that doesn't include our physical body. And they, they, both of these main influences start with the letter P. One is philosophy. Ancient Greece was the centerpiece of the world for philosophy. And especially in Athens, you had uh, the history of Aristotle and Socrates and Plato. And Corinth was only about 60 miles from a- Athens in southeastern Greece. And, and so these philosophers, oftentimes, they had all kinds of different ideas. To simplify it, Plato was one of the more influential thinkers in terms of the view of, of human nature and afterlife and things like that. To simplify some of his teaching is basically the idea that that what is material and what is physical is, is bad, or it's, it's at least very limited. And what is true and real in us is more of our spirit. And so what ends up happening in this view is that death isn't a bad thing at all. Because in death, you shed your body, which is bad, and then your spirit is free to live in eternal bliss, as it was really designed to live. So it's this disembodied existence for eternity in this philosophy really influenced a lot of people in that society. The other P that influenced people a lot was paganism. And there are a lot of different forms of paganism, these different beliefs in gods and goddesses and such. But by and large, the view of paganism in terms of how it viewed the afterlife was pretty much some sort of disembodied existence, or at least if you had some physical existence in the afterlife, it it was disconnected from our bodies that we have here and now. So it wasn't strictly a resurrection And if you travel to Greece, you can't really miss the influence of this paganism, these worship of all kinds of gods and goddesses. When I was in seminary, Shelley and I had the opportunity to travel to Greece and to Turkey to follow in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul. So we visited a bunch of these different biblical cities, and one of them was the city of Corinth. I want to show you some pictures I took in Corinth. All these pictures—I mean, we have a ton of other pictures from Corinth— But these pictures specifically show altars and temples and various sites of worship of various gods and goddesses. I mean, it's all over the place in these ancient Greek cultures. And you have to believe that when people are immersed in this culture of paganism or of these philosophies that believe in a disembodied afterlife, that is going to influence people and lead them to say, as Paul references here in verse 12, he says, How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? You know what? There are a lot of people in that culture who just didn't believe in a physical resurrection from the dead. So you had a lot of people who believed in a disembodied afterlife. You had some others who just completely denied any form of afterlife. It's the idea that when you're dead, you're dead. That's the end of the story. And, and this mentality um, is, is still quite prevalent in today's society as well. That death has the final word. When you're dead, you're dead. You no longer exist in any form or matter. And so you had a lot of people back then who rejected the idea 
of a bodily resurrection. And that, that really flies in the face of saying that Christ is resurrected. And the real focus that Paul has here is not just resurrection as a general concept, but specifically focusing on the resurrection of Jesus. And he points to five huge ramifications if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead. He says in verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. Now, a question, why is this preaching useless? It's not useless because they are um, poor preachers. It's useless because the message that they are preaching would then be empty. The gospel would, it would be empty without the resurrection of Christ. Back in verse 11, Paul said, Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach. What is this that they are preaching? They are preaching the gospel that he's just outlined in the, in the verses prior. He's saying without the resurrection, the gospel is empty. So therefore, our preaching would be empty as well. We have to understand the resurrection is not just some add-on. It's not some secondary aspect of the gospel. It's not something that's optional. Like, oh, you know, we could take or leave the doctrine of resurrection. It is absolutely central to resurrection. And this points to a fundamental misunderstanding that many people have about Christianity. For many people, their view of Christianity is that of religious rules that you want to follow in order to please God. Or they might view Christianity as a series of self-help principles that can help you live your best life now. And if Christianity can be boiled down to just self-help principles and religious rules, you don't really need the death and resurrection of Christ for Christianity. Because those rules and those principles can survive just fine all by themselves. But we have to understand that Christianity is not essentially about rules and self-help principles. Christianity essentially is about the gospel, which is the good news declaring victory. And for Christianity, it's victory of Jesus over sin and death. But without Jesus' resurrection, he certainly did not win the victory. So the gospel without the resurrection is empty. Paul goes on in verse 14, he says, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Your faith is is useless as well. He says something similar down in verse 17 when he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, meaning it's ineffective. It, it doesn't help out anything. It, it's unproductive. It's not, doesn't have any power behind it at all. Now, we live in a culture that values sincerity and authenticity. It really elevates these principles on really the highest pedestal, saying, you know what? It doesn't matter that much what you believe as long as you believe it sincerely. As long as you're authentic in that belief, you can believe what you want to believe, I'll believe what I want to believe. Let's just each be sincere about it and we'll all be good. What Paul is saying here is that is absolute baloney. Because he's saying, you know what, the Christians, I mean, let's just pick on Christians here. He's saying that if Christians are placing their faith in a resurrected Christ, and if Christ was not raised from the dead, that faith, no matter how sincere and how authentic it is, that faith is useless. It, it, it doesn't work. Because Christ has not been raised, so, so your faith is useless at that point. Because then Christians, their faith is in Christ. Their faith, though, however sincere it is, is dead wrong. Because Christ is still in the grave. So the gospel is empty. Faith is useless. Paul goes on to say, you know what? If Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, Christians are liars. Look with me to verse 15. Paul says, more than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. 
And so Christians are then liars. And we've probably learned from a very young age that lying is bad. We should not lie. But this type of lie that, that Christians would be committing would actually be a huge lie, blasphemy, because it's claiming that God did something he didn't actually do. The Christians would be liars if God didn't actually raise Jesus from the dead. On top of that, this gets even more serious still. Verse 17, sin will still then condemn us. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Now you may be thinking, well, what about the death of Christ on the cross? We sing in the song, Jesus paid it all, that even though sin left a crimson stain, Christ has washed us white as snow. What about that truth? What about the truth that we, that we heard sung in the service earlier? It is finished. I mean, Jesus said those words on the cross. He paid the death penalty for us on the cross. Doesn't that mean anything at all? How can you say sin still condemns us because he died? But, but what about, I mean, if he didn't rise again, how's all this work together here? We have to understand that if Jesus didn't rise again, sin still condemns us. Let me give you an analogy of this. I wrote out a check here. Mike, tell me how much that check is for. One million? One billion. Yeah. Two million, yeah. You aren't used to seeing that many, are you? One billion dollars. I wrote out this check. It's actually at this point blank as far as who it's payable to. One billion dollars. It felt kind of funny to write out a check for a billion dollars. What would happen if you took this check to the bank, put your name on it, and cashed it, Mike? Or tried to cash it? What would happen? What's that? They would question it. And it would, if, if, if they took it in and tried to cash it, it would bounce. Because I do not have a billion dollars in my checking account. I doubt any of us do. A billion dollars is a lot to write a check for. And if you try to cash this check, it would bounce because there was not the money in the account to pay for it. It would not clear. It would be ineffective. In the same way, when Jesus died on the cross, he basically, metaphorically speaking, was writing a check for a huge amount, paying the debt that the entire world owes for their sins. I mean, he said, it is finished, paid in full. That's like writing a check. I mean, say if, if, if a check for a billion dollars could cover a huge debt, it would be like you're writing that check. But the check is ineffective until it clears. And the resurrection is what shows that Jesus' payment on the cross for sins, that that payment cleared, that the transaction was accepted by God. That's what is required. Because the death and the resurrection of Christ, they go together. You can't have one without the other if you still want the gospel. So without the resurrection of Christ, the gospel is empty. Just in the same way is that without a billion dollars in my account to cover that check, that check is worthless. It's just a little piece of paper. But Christ has been raised from the dead. So, so we do have hope. We do have victory over sin. But if Christ wasn't raised, sin still condemns us. And because of that, death still reigns. Verse 18, Paul says, Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. One of the great privileges and hopes of Christianity is the hope of life after death. That, that the grave doesn't have the final word. But if we are still condemned by sin, and if Christ did not defeat death, Death still has its grip on us as well. Death still reigns. And these are some very dire, huge ramifications 
if Christ has not been raised from the dead. This is, again, one of the reasons why his resurrection is so essential and so important and why we're devoting a significant amount of time to it this year to help drive the importance of the resurrection home in our lives. Paul closes out saying, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people to most to be pitied. So, so why do you say that? Why are we Christians of all people most to be pitied if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead? Well, the reason is that as Christians, Christ should be our foundation. He should be the greatest joy. He should be the identity that we have in our lives. And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, it shows then that at the end of our life or at some point, we are going to find out that what we built our life on was a deception and a lie. And that would be utterly devastating. Now, you may be thinking, though, well, you know, it would, be, it would be kind of bad, but it wouldn't be the end of the world. But that's kind of a, a, a skewed view of what Paul is really saying here. Many times people view Jesus just as an add-on. Just as, you know, it's something that's nice for their life. They view the gospel kind of as fire insurance. It'll help them out when they, um, when they die. It's kind of like a get-out-of-hell-free card. I mean, you know what get-out-of-hell-free cards are? It's kind of like a get-out-of-jail-free card in Monopoly, where it's really nice when you get that card from Chancellor Community Chess, because that way, if you ever manage to find yourself in jail in the game of Monopoly, you can just play that card, and it gets you right out. Many people view the gospel as a get-out-of-hell-free card that, you know what, when I'm standing before judgment, I can play that card, and it gets me right out. In this type of view, where you view the gospel merely as fire insurance, or as a get-out-of-hell-free card— if you somehow get to the end of life or at some point and you realize, you know what? I didn't use that fire insurance. I don't need that get out of hell free card because, you know what? I didn't have a fire. I, there was no hell and no judgment or anything like that. You'll be like, oh, well, okay. That's not too bad then. That's actually kind of a good thing because you're happy if you get to the end of life and don't need fire insurance, aren't you? Because anyway, we could go on on that. But, but the bottom line here is if that's your view of the gospel, it's not that big a loss if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. But if you have the same view of Jesus that Paul had, for instance, in Philippians 3.8, when he said, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, this view says Jesus is my utter foundation in everything in life. He is my identity. He is my security. He is my significance. He is the one I'm looking to for everything I, I, I look forward more than anything else to seeing him face to face in heaven one day. If that is your mentality, then it is utter loss. Then it is deep despair if Christ has not been raised from the dead. And that is the perspective that Paul has and that we should have as well. Now we started our time together today talking about these what-ifs in life. And if we aren't careful, our what-ifs, especially about the future, can be debilitating. They can be paralyzing, filling us with doubt and anxiety that just will not leave us. But I want to come back now to this key question, though, of what if Christ wasn't raised from the dead? We already talked about the severe ramifications if he wasn't raised from the dead. But what, what are we um, to think if, if we're to ask, you know what, why do you believe Jesus was raised from the dead? I know it's a big deal if he wasn't, but why should we believe that at all? I want to point to five reasons why we can believe in Jesus' resurrection. And they don't all come directly from this passage, but I think it's a very important question, especially when we're talking about the implications if he wasn't raised from the dead. 
One reason to fully believe in Jesus' resurrection is that the Bible clearly teaches that he was resurrected. Now, granted, this means that if you dismiss the Bible, if you don't really agree with what's in here, it doesn't really matter to you if the Bible teaches resurrection or not. But here's something very important to recognize even still. That the resurrection is hammered home over and over and over and over in the pages of Scripture to the degree that you cannot accept the Bible and deny the resurrection. If you want to deny the resurrection, you should really just throw away the whole Bible with it. Because that is how central the, key, uh, the, the topic of Jesus' resurrection is to the message of Scripture. So the Bible very, very clearly, over and over and over, teaches that Jesus was resurrected. Secondly, it's quite clear that Jesus' tomb was empty. Even a lot of secular scholars will agree, you know what, in some, some manner or form, Jesus' tomb became empty. His body was not there. The question is, how does his body leave the tomb? Now, many people will say, well, Jesus' followers came and stole the body. That was even the story going around early on. When the Jewish leaders heard that the tomb was empty, um, they, they bribed the soldiers who'd been guarding the tomb, to, and they, they told the soldiers to tell people, you know what, the, the, the disciples of Jesus, they came and stole the body. So that, that's, that's a common, uh, common topic that people bring up when they hear the tomb was empty. But the question is, why didn't the Jewish leaders then, or other opponents of the early church, just go to the tomb? If his body's in there, just go to the tomb, grab his body, show everyone, hey, he's still here, he's still dead. He didn't rise. This tomb was empty. The question is, how did it get empty? And again, a lot of people point to the disciples stealing the body, but, but that brings us to the third reason to believe in Jesus' resurrection, which is the rapid transformation of Jesus' disciples. You know what? They were not expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. Huh. It's not that Jesus didn't prepare them for that. I mean, he said many different times, hey, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. Three days later, I'm going to rise again. They somehow missed out on that part. Where were they after Jesus was, was crucified? They were hiding in the locked room because they were so scared of the Jewish authorities. They were hiding. I don't think they had it in them to go, you know, go defeat the soldiers guarding the tomb and then pull his body out. On top of that, you look at uh, the martyrdom of the disciples. I mean, the, the rapid transformation of the martyrdom are closely tied together because the disciples, they were so scared, all of a sudden over the course of just, you know, a handful of days, they go from being incredibly fearful to being incredibly bold, out in the streets telling anyone who will listen that Jesus has been, has been resurrected from the dead. And they maintain that story all the way to their death. All but one of Jesus' disciples was killed for their faith in Christ. And there, there will be people who will be martyrs for all kinds of different things because of what they believe. And, and it doesn't necessarily mean that what they believe is true. But you will not get people who maintain a lie that they know is a lie all the way to the grave. Particularly, you won't get a, a large group like this maintaining a lie all the way to the grave. At some point, at least one of them, or if not many of them, are going to crack and say, you know what, it was a hoax, it was a lie. 10 and 11 remaining disciples after Judas died for their faith in Christ because they believed that Jesus was resurrected. The one who didn't die, John, was exiled for his faith on the island of Patmos. And you look at martyrdom for others as well. You look at uh, James, the brother of Jesus. You look at the apostle Paul. Both of them were strongly antagonistic 
against Jesus during his earthly ministry, and then Paul was persecuting Christians um, for a while after Jesus was resurrected. What led to their transformation? I don't think they would have been transformed if not for the resurrection of Christ and the resurrected Christ appearing to them. That was what led to their transformation. Both of them also died because of their belief in the gospel of Jesus' resurrection. So these are four reasons to believe in Jesus' resurrection. The fifth reason is that Jesus appeared to more than 500 people after he was resurrected. Paul wrote that in 1 Corinthians 15. And... And Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians, this letter, just a couple of decades after Jesus' resurrection. He says, you know what? Most of these 500 people are still alive. Some have died, but most are still alive. That is an awfully risky thing to write if it wasn't true. And think about how different it is for Jesus to have appeared to more than 500 people rather than just appearing to a couple people. I mean, because if Jesus just appeared to a couple of his closest disciples, it would be easy to dismiss it and say, you know what, they're just kind of making this up. But he appeared to more than 500, most of whom are still alive. So all it would take was a little research, go interview some people. And if you can't find anyone who, who claims to have seen Jesus alive, alive, it points to a likelihood that it is a hoax. But no one did that. Why? Because there were so many people who had seen Jesus alive. So these are five reasons among many to believe in Jesus' resurrection. But I come back to the point of how Jesus' resurrection is absolutely central to the gospel. If there's no resurrection, there is no gospel. And this got me to thinking this week about how there are certain stories, maybe in movies or in books, where you have a hero or a central character who dies, but their death is kind of a form of victory even still. For instance, I thought of the movie Braveheart. Braveheart features Mel Gibson playing the character William Wallace many centuries ago, where Scotland is fighting for their freedom against England. And William Wallace is leading that fight. He's really rising up this whole band of people to fight uh, for Scotland's freedom. At the end of the movie, William Wallace dies. Now, in the moments leading up to his death, though, it's clear that his death is not ultimate defeat. His death almost has a sense of victory. I mean, he's being tortured by an executioner uh, for the English. As he's being tortured, I mean, the executioner is asking over and over, do you repent? Do you repent? Do you, um, I mean, do you pledge allegiance to England? And at one point, the executioner says, the prisoner wishes to say a word. And everyone's silent. Everyone is just paying attention to what's he going to say. If you've seen the movie, you know exactly what comes next. He cries out in as loud a voice as he can muster, Freedom! It's that type of, I mean, that's kind of how it sounds. And it's, you get this sense of victory even through death. Listen to the last two lines of the movie Braveheart. See, the movement had begun. William Wallace's death was not the end. It says, the last two lines say, In the year of our Lord, 1314, patriots of Scotland, starving and outnumbered, charged the fields of Bannockburn. They fought like warrior poets. They fought like Scotsmen and won their freedom. So we see this picture of William Wallace, this main character, this hero who died. 
His death is even its own form of victory. But he's inspired a movement that goes on that despite his death, or perhaps even because of it, they win a victory. Despite the fact the main character, the hero, has died. That is not the case for Jesus and for Christianity. Because for Jesus, the resurrection from the dead is an all-or-nothing affair. If he doesn't resurrect from the dead, he is lost. There is no victory to be gained there. But if he does rise from the dead, he wins. His victory is his. There's no middle ground there. I mean, one of the things to understand here is that Jesus' goal is not just to inspire some movement uh, or to, to pass on some wise teaching that would stand apart from him. Because if he was, his death and resurrection don't really matter that much. I mean, you think about, though, comparison to other leaders and, and, and pioneers down through the centuries. Think of William Wallace. He died. The movement for Scotland's freedom continued even though he remained dead. And they ultimately, ultimately attained their freedom. Steve Jobs, he died. Apple continues on even though he remains dead. The founding fathers of America, they, they are obviously all dead now. But America continues on even though they are all dead. I think of the prophet Muhammad. He founded Islam. He is dead. But Islam continues without him. Christianity is not that way, though. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, there would be no Christianity today. I mean, the disciples, they would have remained crushed. They would have remained defeated. They would have probably remained scared. They would have eventually gone back to their normal lives, but with this feeling of loss, of heartache. I mean, Jesus, even if they would have held on to his precious teachings and would have had fond memories of him, any hopes that they ever had of him being the Messiah would have been crushed with the crucifixion. The cross would have merely been a, a very sad and sorrowful ending and shameful ending to Jesus' life and career. But death didn't have a final word with him. He was resurrected. And because of that, Christianity blossomed. Because of that, the gospel is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead, our faith is a powerful means, the only means, of receiving salvation. Because of the resurrection of Christ, Christians are not liars. Instead, we have the truth. Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Because Jesus was resurrected from the dead, our sin debt has been paid in full, and death has been swallowed up in victory. And these are all precious truths that we hold on to, and they have all been secured for us because Jesus was raised from the dead. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you sent your Son into this world. He, he suffered much on our behalf. He said it is finished, paid in full. And then the check cleared, metaphorically speaking, when he rose from the dead. Lord, we thank you for these truths. I pray that they will become more and more precious to us, that our lives really will be built on the foundation of Christ, that he will be the source of our identity, the source of our significance, the source of our security. And that not only in the season leading up to Easter, but throughout our whole lives and throughout eternity, that we will be singing praises to you out of the depths of our hearts because you are victorious and because your victory has been shared with us through faith in you. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your love for us. And thank you for the victory that's been secured for us through Jesus' resurrection. We pray these things in his name. Amen.